All right, good to see you all this morning. Um, I just want to start this morning um, as we dive into our second sermon here in Ephesians by asking you all a bit of a personal question. Um, How's your prayer life? When do you pray? What do you pray? Who do you pray for? Do you just feel that you're really doing business with God? The text that we've got in front of us this morning uh, has just really spoken to me this week because it's been pressing that question into my life, uh, making me examine my own heart. Um, For me, it's led me to think, I guess, about where I am today compared with where I used to be. Because when I was younger, uh, there are times when it certainly seems to me that I was engaging with God in prayer just a little bit more than I have been doing over these last few years. Um, I went back and looked in some of my old journals, and I just uh, see this kind of picture of dependence on God staring back out from me uh, from the pages. I find these lists of friends and family members, four people deep, that I was praying for every day. Uh, Lists of besetting sins that I was regularly bringing before God, asking him to confront and defeat in me. Uh, I had the Lord's Prayer all laid out and dissected here as a model for my own prayers and I can remember where all of that stuff started. When I was at university um, one Saturday night at our CU, our Christian Union meeting, uh, Don Carson came to speak and uh, he gave a talk on Paul's prayers uh, as a model for us to follow in our own lives and I still remember him saying something pretty much like this, if you're feeling a bit lost in prayer and you really want to be doing business with God, why don't you come in under Paul or one of the other great prayers of the Bible, and let them mentor you. And God really worked in my heart through that, uh, and he showed me what I needed to do. Now, I know that there are reasons why things are a little bit different now. You know, back then, that was university life. Uh, And after that, you know, I had many years of illness where I just had so much more time, uh, and that time was a blessing that I, I don't quite have now. Uh, Now I'm a husband, I'm a father, we have three tiny little kiddies. Um, The time that I try and set aside for reading in the morning just so easily gets squished by kind of staying up late the the night before to just get things done around the house or uh, it gets uh, squashed in the morning by just trying to run around, help the kids get up and get ready. Um, And what happens is that my prayer time, the prayer part of my time with God, just gets squished down into these uh, 10 guilt-laden minutes at the end of my Bible reading where I'm just kind of desperately trying to remember even the last time that I spoke to the people that I'm praying for, um, trying to think of anything more useful I can pray than, dear God, please kind of bless this person or that person. Please help them with whatever they need help with. Amen. (laughs) Familiar? So what's happened is that I guess I've just got a bit discouraged about prayer Um, because I'm always testing myself against where I was uh, because I can't see a way to get back there. Um, I guess I've just failed to be creative and find new ways to make prayer a central part of my life now. But God has really spoken into that situation in my life this week through this text that we're about to read. Uh, He's taken me back to that original point of inspiration in Paul's prayers. He's reminded me that the place where we find our marching orders for prayer is not some program or not some set of overwhelming expectations that come from the past, but from his own word. And my prayer for us this morning is just that God would uh, help me communicate 
what I've learned to us as a body and that maybe there might be some of you out there, maybe many of you, uh, who need to hear what we're just about to read as much as I do. So um, we're going to read this text now. It comes from Ephesians. So stand with me and find Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, and reading through to the end of the chapter. Okay? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, so take a seat. That's our text for today. So um, I wonder what you made of that. For me, reading a passage like that out of the Bible is wonderful, but also a little bit discouraging. It's wonderful because as I hear the words pass me by, uh, I realize that there are some amazing things on display here. Paul talks about wisdom and revelation and hope and a glorious inheritance uh, and Jesus being exalted Uh, But it's a little bit discouraging just because I can't hold all of them in my head for long enough to figure out what in the world's going on. It reminds me a little bit of my experience uh, uh, when I was younger trying to develop my skills as a guitarist. Uh, Many of you will know uh, this, that I've played the guitar um, since I was uh, tiny. Uh, These days I've settled down a little bit and I play this really nice folksy kind of English fingerstyle acoustic stuff. Uh, But believe it or not, back in the day, um, I used to just be super into Jimi Hendrix and Van Halen and all this super technical instrumental rock. And um, as part of that, I got into this amazing American guitarist called Joe Satriani, who's a bit of a mentor to many of today's really good players. Um, The problem, though, with apprenticing yourself to Joe Satriani's music as a a kind of model for you to follow is the same problem that many of us have with Paul, uh, because he's such a genius that it's hard to understand what it is that he's actually doing. Uh, So I've got a little video clip to show you here, which just kind of captures how I feel about this. It comes from Joe Satriani's uh, video biography, where he has a bunch of other guitarists come on and just talk about their experience of working with him. But just for laughs, uh, what I thought I would do here is show you uh, the extract when he brings Nigel Tufnell, who's the lead guitarist from Spinal Tap, uh, the, uh, the 70s spoof rock band, when he brings him in to give his reflections on Joe's skill. So if you knock the lights down, listen to this. <laughs> we'll give you a minute, Tim. Talk among yourselves about... 
early 80s instrumental rock and your memories of the great hair bands. <laughs> it's frozen. Oh, what a shame. We'll just give it another bit because it's a fun clip here. I've really, haven't given you that intro introduction. I mean, the only alternative is that I grab the guitar and play you the clip. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> what do you think, Tim? Is it toast? I think we might have to pass on Nigel Tofner. What a shame. Oh, well. Okay. Do you want to put the lights back up, John? So, oh, dear. I was so looking forward to that. <laughs> Basically, it's this really fun bit where Nigel Tufnell's sitting there and he's um, saying how, you know, when he was watching Joe Satriani play, he um, uh, was just kind of bemused by what was going on. And he, he looked at it and he says, yeah, I, I had a chance to slow it down on a video once, but it was still too quick. I, uh, I watch his fingers move and I say, yeah, yeah, but where are they going? <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I wish you could have heard him do it in his funny accent, but the, uh, that's really where I uh, kind of... <laughs> okay, you heard it in my funny accent anyway, but um, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about Paul. Um, I don't know whether you have the same reaction, but as you read through that first chapter of Ephesians, you see his fingers move, you know, the theological genius uh, blazing past us, but you think, like, what in the world is it? Like, what does it mean? Um, so I guess uh, that can be daunting and maybe a little bit discouraging. But at the same time, I guess what I wanted us to focus on um, is that despite that fact, God chose this theological genius, Paul, uh, to be one of the principal means that he used to reveal himself in the New Testament. So that's encouraging to us because we're not alone here. Even though we do feel daunted, we can ask God and his spirit to help us. Um, and maybe we won't get a complete understanding of everything that Paul had in his head, uh, but we can trust that God will work through us, uh, work in us through the words that Paul uh, has uh, given us here to shape, um, uh, shape us the way that he wants us to be shaped. So in, with that in mind, I'd like us to pray and just pray that God would do that work in us, and then we'll dive into the text here. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you uh, that you are... Uh, not the kind of God who's just like, oh, there's your book, you get it, do it, do it all on your own. Uh, you haven't just sent us out uh, without help. Thank you, God, that your spirit is alive in each one of us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would go to work on our hearts and our minds this morning. Uh, we long to be receptive to what it is that the Bible says. And we pray that you would help us uh, to grasp it and to see where uh, we need to change. And God, we pray that uh, you would work those changes out in us and uh, commit us, help us to be committed to, to making them happen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start at the start. Even though this looks a bit daunting, it turns out that the very first words in our passage provide us with a clear set of instructions about how to begin. Uh, you'll definitely need your Bibles open as we go through this. So uh, we're looking here at verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
Now, whenever we see a phrase like that in our Bibles, for this reason, or therefore, or so that, especially when we're reading Paul, we need to sit up and pay attention. Because it's a clue that what we're looking at here is a logical argument. Paul does this kind of thing all the time. He doesn't just throw random disconnected thoughts down onto the paper. He's always going somewhere. It's all A plus B equals C. And in the light of C, we have implications, D, E, and F. And for this reason, now let's pray G. That's the kind of thing that Paul's all about. Now, what we do, of course, is often we just kind of ride roughshod over the whole of that, and we just dive in, pick out an individual verse, make it stand on a bumper sticker or something. Uh, But if we really want to get the meat out of what it is that Paul has to say, we need to be able to follow the logic. So what is the logic in this passage? Why does Paul start with the words, for this reason? Well, the logic is simply that Paul has a reason for praying what he's about to pray. And that reason is the whole previous section of the text. That single monster sentence, all 202 words of it in the Greek that we have translated in the Bible as verses 3 to 14. Great. (laughs) That's good, I guess, in that now at least we know where the reason is. But that doesn't immediately tell us what the reason is, does it? It's a bit like me saying, there's an animal in that forest over there. Great. At least I'm forewarned, but it doesn't tell me whether it's a turtle or a tiger, does it? So to help us make progress, we need to break that big sentence down and figure out what Paul is really getting at. And the key to achieving that is realizing that the whole of that first sentence of the book is a list It's a list of blessings, the blessings that we have as believers. And in verse 3, if you look in your text, you'll see it there. Paul introduces his list like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Colon. Then in the four verses through to the end, he lists out the spiritual blessings that he has in mind. So at the simplest level, this is much like a shopping list. When I go to Maya on a Friday night, um, and uh, I have the delight of meeting many of you there, okay, so it's nice to shout out to all of you who come and say hi in Maya. Um, (laughs) I have a part of my list that's headed vegetables, um, and this last Friday it had under that four items, carrots, onions, eggplant, and leeks. And it's the same with Paul's list, kind of. Under his heading, spiritual blessings, he has four items that he wants us to concentrate on. If you follow along with me in your text, you'll see them all. First of all, he highlights number one, that we have been chosen to be holy. That's in verse four. Number two, he highlights the blessing that we have been predestined for adoption. That's in verse five. Next, he highlights the blessing that we have been redeemed. That's in verse seven. And then he highlights the fact that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. God has taken us into his confidence, uh, told us what his intentions are. That's in verse 9. So if you look with me on the screen here, I'll show you what that looks like on a little diagram. Let's hope that this one works. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Woo! Pro Presenter succeeds where Windows Media Player fails. All right. Um, So you can see them all there, four spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, um, all listed out. We've been chosen to be holy, 
Um, we have been predestined for adoption, we've been redeemed, and God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, you might have noticed, if you were really kind of listening out for it, at the start of the service, when Greg, Greg led us through that corporate reading, I stripped down the text of Ephesians 1 just to those four things, to make it super clear as we read along, and you might have found it maybe easier to digest as a result. But the problem is that when we read the unabbreviated version in our Bibles, We notice, of course, that there's actually a lot more material packed around these four main points than just that. Paul can't actually get past the second item in the list before he starts providing colour commentary on all of the items in the list as he goes along. So if you keep going with me on this Maya shopping list analogy, um, if I wrote my list the way that Paul writes it, it will come out something like this. Vegetables. Number one, carrots. Number two, onions. Oh yes, onions. They'll make a great spaghetti bolognese. Three, Eggplant. I love eggplant. Especially with roasted peppers. That makes a really great lunch to take into the office. And the children love it too. Uh, Four. Leeks. Yes, that's a good one. That's a good seasonal choice. That reminds me a little bit of home. Uh, So do you see it's still a list? Uh, But it's got a bunch of extra content in it now, which explains the things that I like about each item as we go along. And that's what Paul is doing in his list. So that's why it kind of gets so bulky. But Paul is a little bit more disciplined than I am, uh, because when he writes his list, all of the extra content turns out to be of exactly the same type. Paul's extra content is there to teach us what each of these blessings in the list shows us about God's character. So let me show you that on the diagram here. So we'll just add it in. So can you see that first part of Ephesians is a list of blessings, and a list of character attributes of God. And Paul's daisy-chaining them together as we go along. So let me give you an example, and you'll see this in the text. If you look with me at verses 5 and 6, you'll see that Paul describes the second blessing on the list. The second blessing is that we've been predestined for adoption as children. But Paul isn't content just to leave it at that. Uh, Paul wants us to understand what our adoption tells us about God. So first of all, he tells us why God has adopted us. God's motive is love. In love, says Paul, he predestined us for adoption. So God just doesn't bring us into his family to make himself feel good or to earn some kind of heavenly tax credit. Um, He does it because his heart goes out to us. He wants to have us near him. Next, Paul tells us how God adopted us. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So he did it through Jesus. Jesus was separated from God so that we might be brought near to God as children. And he did it because he wanted to. He wasn't forced to do it. He didn't do it against his better judgment. God delights in reaching out to outcasts. That's the kind of God he is. And then finally, Paul tells us the result of God adopting us. He adopted us to the praise of his glorious grace. Our adoption into God's family publicly declares the fact that God is a God who gives self-sacrificially and unconditionally. He isn't a quid pro quo kind of God. We don't need to impress him to get into his family. And we wouldn't be able to do it even if we tried. So do you see now how this section works? We have a list of blessings combined with a whole collection of truths about God's character which are highlighted by those blessings. So now we nearly have that whole first section of Ephesians down. The only rider to that is that Paul handles the very last blessing in his list just a little bit differently. When Paul gets to the last blessing, 
that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. He goes beyond simply using that as a springboard to teach us about God's character, although he does do that. Paul also wants us to know actually what that mystery is. That's going to be one of the big themes of the book of Ephesians as we go through. So we need to kind of latch on to that. So in verse 10 of the first chapter, Paul just spills all the beans. The mystery is that in the end, all things in heaven and on earth will be united under Christ. Wow. In fact, Paul has a very good reason for opening up the mystery just there. You see, Paul is a Jew, but the vast majority of his audience are Gentiles. They don't share Paul's Jewish background. They grew up in and around this whole Ephesian culture, worshipping Artemis and living a pagan lifestyle. So right out of the gates, Paul wants them to be assured of the fact that these blessings are for them as well. So in verses 11 and 12, uh, he tells uh, them that Jewish Christians, those who were the first to hope in Christ, are included in the blessings. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? But then in verses 13 and 14... He tells them that they also have been included and that they've been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance. So that's the first amazing implication of the fact that God is bringing all things into unity in Christ. It doesn't matter where we come from or what our background is, we can all be included in this wonderful work of God. That's the reason that Paul refers to at the beginning of our passage. That's the reason why Paul's moved to pray. God has given amazing blessings to his people. Those blessings teach us truths about God's character and these Gentiles that he's writing to are included. Hooray. So now let's take that prayer uh, uh, kind of by the horns itself. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now that makes a little bit more sense to us now. The whole first section of the chapter is about the blessings that God gives to his people, right? And it doesn't matter if we're Jews or Gentiles, we can all be God's people if we believe and receive the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in verse 13. And Paul sees that in the people that he's writing to. Do they believe? Yes. How do we know? Paul tells us in verse 15, he has seen their faith. And have they received the Holy Spirit? Yes. How do we know? Paul tells us also in verse 15, he has seen their love for all of God's people. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because maybe if we had just looked at verses 13 and 14 on their own, we might have been tempted to draw all sorts of conclusions about what this sealing with the Spirit really means. Is it tongues? Is it prophecy? Are those the marks of the Spirit's presence in us that guarantee our inheritance and tell us that we're truly saved? But if we're following Paul's logic here, we find that he actually tells us exactly what the seal of the Spirit looks like in the very next verse. The seal of the Spirit, the distinctive mark of his work in the human life, is that we love the people around us. And that's actually the picture that we're given throughout the New Testament. Uh, In John 13, Jesus says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Go to the other end of the New Testament. In 1 John 1, we find the same thing. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, says John. 
And later on, he repeats that even more clearly. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That's how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So that's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God. Have you ever wondered that? The Spirit turns our hearts outwards. He makes us less concerned with ourselves and more concerned about loving other people. And that's what Paul sees in his audience. So that's the reason he's going to pray pray the prayer that he prays. Paul has confidence that these people are really believers. And so what we're going to get here is a picture of how we can pray for the many people in our lives in whom we see similar evidence that God is at work. This prayer is going to show us how we can pray for each other. Now let's move on into verse 16. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, says Paul, remembering you in my prayers. Now I don't want to camp here, but that's kind of striking as well, don't you think? That Paul is able to say, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you. Because it's not as if these Ephesians are the only group of Christians that Paul knows, is it? The Ephesian church is the last uh, major church that Paul gets to know on his missionary journeys. But before he even arrived in Ephesus, the book of Acts told us about at least 10 other churches that Paul had either founded or been based in for a while. Syrian Antioch, Scythian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Jerusalem, Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea, Corinth. Sounds like a kind of a list of railway stops, doesn't it? And his letters show us uh, that he was praying for all of them and for many other churches with exactly this kind of determination. Years after his initial connection with these places, he was still keeping up to date with their news and turning that news into intelligent prayers on their behalf. So all that makes me just look back And my prayer diary, frankly, makes me reassess things a little bit. Yes, there is a reason why I should still be praying for my friends back in England and for the people that I used to read the Bible with when I was at university, even though maybe I haven't seen them for years. Because God can work through that. God is a faithful God. God is a God of relationships. God is a God who takes hold of us and won't let us go. And he's blessed us like that so that we can bless other people like that. So we need to ask ourselves, who are we praying for with that kind of determination? Paul didn't stop giving thanks and praying for the Ephesians until the day that he died. And that's one of the parts of this that's just really spoken to me as I've been praying and reading through that this week. It's godliness in me to be committed to others because God is committed to me. Does that make sense? Anyway, now we reach verse 17 and we really hit the prayer proper. It reads like this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So again, let's just break that up diagrammatically. You can tell this is the way that I think it kind of helps me work my way through these uh, letters of Paul. So here we go. This is our section now, the prayer, Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. Paul prays that God might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know him better. And then he prays that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened so that they might know the hope to which God's called them that they might know God's glorious inheritance in his holy people, and that they might know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. 
Now, the trick to understanding this part of the chapter is realizing that in both of those blocks, Paul is actually praying exactly the same thing. The first part of the prayer, that God will give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know him better, is the same as the second part of the prayer, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. The only substantial difference is that in the second part of the prayer, Paul breaks up and explains what knowing God better looks like. He breaks it into three different pieces. Uh, Knowing the hope to which God has called us, knowing God's glorious inheritance in his holy people, and knowing God's incomparably great power for us who believe. So what is it that we've really got here? In the second part of the prayer, we have a series of amazing truths that God wants his readers to grasp and live out. And in the first part of the prayer, we have Paul's conviction that when all these things are rolled up together, the net result is that we know more of God's character attributes, that we get to know him better. Does this sound familiar? Can you see that what Paul is doing in the second part of the chapter here that we're reading today is exactly what he was doing in the first part of the chapter that we read last week? In verses 3 to 14, we saw Paul's own experience that when he reflected on the amazing things that God had done for him and on the amazing blessings that he had received, he could not help being drawn into appreciation of God's character, could he? He couldn't just write eggplant on his shopping list. He had to write eggplant. Oh, I love eggplant. That's going to make a cracking moussaka. You know, when he spoke about the way that God predestined us to be his children, he couldn't help but call out praise to God for his love. When he spoke about the way that God has redeemed us and forgiven our sin, he couldn't help but call out praise to God for his grace. When he spoke about the way that God has taken us into his confidence and revealed to us the mystery of his will, he couldn't help but call out praise to God for his wisdom and understanding. Knowing and reflecting on his blessings drove Paul into a deeper knowledge of who God was. And now that's his prayer for the Ephesians. That's the reason why our passage starts with the words, for this reason. Paul wanted the Ephesians to go on the same journey that he had gone on, taking the truths that he listed out in the opening verses of the chapter, all the wonderful blessings that God has given us, and praying over them, and meditating on them, and venturing their lives on them, to the point where they couldn't help but get to know God better. And that realisation that that's what's going on in this first chapter totally opens up all of the applications of this prayer for us. See, if we looked at verse 17 in isolation, I dare say we might have got into some difficulties there as well. Paul prays that the Ephesians might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And we might have gone off down the track saying, wow, if I really want to know God better, maybe I need to go beyond all the things that I heard when I was first converted. And I need to start seeking direct revelations from God where he tells me where to go and what to do and who to marry. But when we look at the verse in its context, we see that Paul has something very different in mind, doesn't he? Paul's experience is that reflecting on what God has done is the thing that helped him to know God better. That's what he longs for in the lives of his readers. And I'm sure that would be his prescription for us too. Paul prayed that these Ephesians would go back and count their blessings one by one. He wanted them to internalize them and feed on the things that God had done for them and live in the conviction that they're true. And those are our marching orders from this text as well. 
So watch Paul follow that logic as he starts to break things open here in the second part of the prayer. The first step towards knowing God's better in this next section, starting in verse 18, is that we might know the hope to which we've been called. Well, what does he mean? Well, I think he's still looking back into those opening verses. All the items in that list of blessings that we looked at in the first part of the chapter have this hope piece to them, don't they? Let's look at the diagram again. So here's the first part of the chapter that Paul's trying to encourage us to keep in mind. The first blessing on the list, that we've been chosen to be holy. That's true of us now. God is making us holy. But we're still hoping for the day when that verdict of holiness that God sees over us will match up with the practical reality. When all our sin and our stupidity will finally be a thing of the past. The second blessing is that God has predestined us for adoption. But we're all still waiting and hoping and groaning with the rest of creation, as Paul says in Romans, aren't we? That the children of God will be revealed. The third blessing is that God has redeemed us from slavery to sin. But we're all still hoping for redemption too. If you look in verse 14 of our passage, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Future tense. And the fourth blessing is that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. That all things in heaven and on earth will be united under Christ. But we're still waiting and hoping for the day when that mystery will be fully realized, aren't we? So what we have here is this classic New Testament now but not yet dynamic. The blessings that we have in Christ, the blessings that Paul lists out here in verses 3 to 14, are also the hope to which God has called us. And it's this hope that, God, that Paul wants the Ephesians to know so badly. Why? Because it's the key to knowing God better. Paul understands that just as he experienced himself, if we will only focus our um, minds on the hopes that God has set before us, and if we will work them down into our hearts as we put confidence in them, we will find the knowledge of God just blowing up and exploding in front of our eyes. Just follow along with me through Paul's list and you'll see how it works. Think about the first blessing in his analysis that we've been called to be holy. What do we discover if we actually live that out? We get to know God better. Paul doesn't provide an explicit uh, connection to one of God's character attributes here. But if we focus on holiness as God's plan for us, I don't think we can help seeing who he is more clearly. Our eyes will be open to God's uh, faithfulness. We'll grasp the fact that God has set out to make a people for himself, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and that he's going to do it. Nothing can stop him. This will also open our eyes to God's kindness. We'll discover that he knows all about our sin and what it does to us and the people all around us. He knows how painful it is, how in our best moments we long for that pain to be removed. And then we experience the joy of the fact that in the end, he will remove it. We will be holy for eternity. That's the reason why he chose us. Think about the second blessing on the list. In Paul's analysis, uh, he has this thing here that we'll be, uh, we're predestined to be God's children that will enjoy that status forever. What do we discover if we start to live that out? We get to know God better. Paul tells us what he discovered in the text. His eyes were open to God's love. And that makes sense, doesn't it? What else but the most extraordinary love can motivate God to take his enemies, 
people who consistently ignore him and resist him and act like we know more about running the world than he does and welcome us into his family like long-lost children. According to Paul, living in the reality that we're adopted also opens our eyes to the kinds of things that put a smile on God's face, his pleasure and his will. Reaching out to the orphan gladdens the heart of God. He loves that sensation of setting the lonely and the unloved in families. If we want to know God better, we simply need to take that truth to heart and live it out. Think about the third blessing on Paul's list, redemption. That our lives and even our whole world will be bought back out of slavery to sin. If we really start to live in that reality, we won't be able to hope getting to know God, help getting to know God better. Like Paul, our eyes will be opened to God's grace. We'll discover that God is not a rip it up and start again kind of God. God is a healer. God is an untangler. God wades into the most complicated, contorted, intractable human situations. God makes a way where there is no way. And think about the final blessing on Paul's list, that one day all things will be united under Christ. That too helps us to get to know God better. Paul found it opened his eyes to God's wisdom. Human wisdom has lifted up so many alternatives to Christ over the years, hasn't it? We've lifted up capitalism as the, uh, the force around which all things will, uni- will unite. International law as the force around which all things will unite. The brotherhood of man as the force around which all things will unite. But as we watch them play out, doesn't each one just leave us wondering whether it really deserves our confidence? The expectations are huge every time, but the delivery is just such a letdown. It's only when we see Jesus lifted up as the answer to that longing that we see the brilliant wisdom of God, how well he knows our need and how thoroughly he stepped into our world to meet it. So do you see where Paul is going here? If we will only live in these hopes to which God has called us, if we will only think about them as we drive our cars, if we'll only talk about them in our families over the breakfast table, If we'll only consciously make our plans and set our priorities on the assumption that these promises are actually true, Paul is telling us we won't be able to avoid getting to know God better and better. And isn't that what we really, really want? That prayer that Paul prays, that you might know God better, that's the cry of my heart. Well, here it is. This is the way that we do it. But this isn't the end of his prayer. Paul still has two more things that he wants to pray for the Ephesians and we're going to deal with those briefly as we finish here. The first is that they might know the riches of his glorious inheritance. What does he mean by that? Well, once again, if we follow the logic back through the prayer, it becomes clear. In verse 14, if you look at that, Paul spent some time concentrating on our inheritance, didn't he? The prospect that one day, All the amazing hopes listed in the first few verses of the chapter will be fulfilled in us. But now he switches gears and starts talking about God's inheritance. Strange though it may seem, Paul wants us, wants the Ephesians to know that God himself looks forward to a day when he will come into his own, when his investments will mature, when he will march down to the bank and cash out his CD. And Paul thinks this is so important that it ranks as one of the three central pillars of knowing God better that we find in his prayer. Why? Why does he think it's so important? The simple answer 
is that the inheritance that God has got his eye on is us. We are the investment that he's waiting to see mature. We're the CD that he's itching to withdraw. God has got his heart set on you and me. He's got high hopes for us. God has equipped us, equipped us with gifts and talents, and he's expecting to see us put them to work because he knows that they have the potential to return a hundred times uh, their original value. That's the kind of God that God is. And Paul wants us to know it. Why? Not just because he wants us to get to know God better, but because he also wants to look at ourselves and just ask, hey, am I really going to be worth the wait? When God goes down to the bank at the end of time and claims his inheritance, is my life going to be worth withdrawing? Is he going to see the return that he's hoping for? Is he going to see the gifts that he gave me worn down to within an inch of their lives by overuse and service of the gospel? Those might be tough questions for us. I know they are for me. But that's why uh, Paul saved his third and final point till the end. See, if we're going to do this, we need help, don't we? And bless God, that's exactly what we have. The third piece of knowing God better that Paul gives us in this prayer is knowing his incomparably great power for us who believe. We have the privilege of plugging the power cord of our lives into the same outlet that powered the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Look at what that power is capable of achieving. Paul says that it seated Jesus at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And that through that power, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We may doubt that we're capable of really grasping the hope to which we've been called and of living on the assumption that all those promises are really true. We may doubt that we're capable of coming to the end of our lives, having played our part in the inheritance that God will one day claim. But we need to know that the power of God can achieve what we can't. God's power is the kind of power that reaches its objectives. It doesn't set out bravely and then fall short. God's power infallibly reaches its destination. That's the mystery of God's will, isn't it? That God will bring all things in heaven and on earth into unity under Christ. That God will place everything under his feet and appoint him head over everything for the church. That's the destination to which all history is marching, willingly or unwillingly. And Paul's encouragement to us here is that the same power that's driving that lives in us. So what do we do with this? How will God have us respond? Well, these are amazing truths and challenges for our lives, aren't they? We come to this text and we see ourselves in these Ephesians. Just as Paul longed and prayed for them, that they might know God better, I'm sure God has the same longing for us. God wants us to pick up the bike of all these hopes from the first 14 verses and ride that thing. God wants us to set our hearts on the day that he will come into his inheritance and say, I want to be part of that. God wants us to come to him asking for power to live. 
God wants us to take decisions for ourselves and for our families, believing that his power will be there for us when we need it. But there's more for us here even than that. You see, for me at least, this passage takes me back to where we started, reviewing my prayer life and wondering whether it isn't time that I just got a bit more serious about it again. If we read this passage right, we don't just come to it hearing God's call to the Ephesians, do we? We come to it hearing God's call just to be a bit more like Paul. Putting myself under Paul as a prayer mentor was where it all started for me. That's how I started really doing business with God. And as I've read through these words over and over this week, you wouldn't believe how many times, um, I've just felt convicted that that's a lesson that I need to relearn. And so I've started praying this prayer out of Ephesians for Ruth and the kids. Not just that God would bless them in some vague, unspecified way, but that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know him better. I started praying this prayer for my friends again, that they might really grasp the hope to which God has called them. I've been praying for my best man, Jamie, that he might know that he's been chosen for holiness and that he might see in it the riches of God's faithfulness and kindness. I've been praying for my university friend, Ben, that he might know that he's been predestined for adoption and that he might see in it God's love and grace towards him. I've been praying for another friend of mine who's pastoring a church in Australia, that he might know and be able to communicate the wonders of redemption. I've been praying for our home church in London, that God might protect and maintain them in that mystery of unity that Christ died and rose to achieve. I've been praying this prayer for crossroads, that we might put a smile on Jesus' face when he comes with all his holy ones and withdraws us from the bank. Amen? I've been praying this prayer for myself, that God would fill me with his incomparably great power, that I might keep going to the end, just as surely as he will keep going, until all things are placed under Jesus' feet. And that's my challenge to you this morning. Will you join me? Will you take this prayer and the other prayers that we find all across God's amazing words and make them your own? That our prayers might not just graze the surface of life, but that in God's strength, they might move heaven itself. Let's pray. God in heaven, we just long that you would do a work in us in this grace of prayer. We need you. God, we need your power and strength, but we know that it's there for us, Lord, that you work in us so willingly by that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So would you help us fix our eyes on the hopes that you've given us? God, help us see ahead of us that incredible inheritance that you have planned to withdraw. And I pray, God, that you would help us fix our hearts on those things that we might know you better day after day after day. And that in a year's time, we might know you better than we do now. And that in 10 years' time, we might know you better than we do next year. God, And when that day comes, when you call us to stand before you, weak and inadequate, though everything that we'll put before you will be, Lord God, might our lives have been recklessly spent uh, in the project, in the aim of seeking you and serving you and letting your blessings be known to others. In Jesus' name, amen.